Good morning. It's a lot of information, isn't it? I guess I got some explaining to do. The uh, this morning I get I really get a delightful task, and that is to teach about one of my very favorite passages in one of my very favorite books of the Bible. I can't get any better than that. The passage that we're talking about today in Leviticus 16 is uh, is fundamental and foundational to all of Christian theology, Judeo-Christian theology. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna cover as well as we can chapter 16 in one session, and then we're going to make a little foray into chapter 17 because it adds uh, some important elements to this discussion. It would be difficult to find any passage in the Old Testament that points more vividly and more powerfully to the once-for-all provision of forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. Uh, This passage demonstrates the perfect unity of Scripture, and it reveals the heart of God's plan of redemption. And and all of this is occurring 1,400 years before Jesus Christ actually came. Now, even though we're in the auditorium this morning, I want to treat this uh, as much as possible like the class we've been doing in the parlor, and that means that if you uh, if you think of a question or a comment and you want to interrupt, feel free to just uh, blurt it out. If I don't see your hand, just uh, raise your voice and blurt it out, and then I'll try to give you the most convincing answer I can make up on the spur of the moment, just like I always do. <clears throat> uh, Leviticus 16 begins in verses 1 and 2, with a warning. And it is a stern warning. Uh, In our previous lesson in chapter 10, we saw how seriously God takes it when his priests treated as common or as trivial that which he had declared to be holy. And in fact, we saw that in the end of Leviticus 9, fire had come forth from the presence of God and consumed the first round of the sacrifices, the uh, sin offerings and guilt offerings, the burnt offerings and grain and libation offerings that went with them, and the peace offerings. The first round of all of those offerings was presented in Leviticus 9, and because Israel had presented them in obedience, God graciously consume them by sending fire out from his presence to ignite that flame on the altar and and to burn all all of his portion of the offerings up in smoke. That was uh that sealed the the blessing that Aaron and Moses had given to the people that day. And by the way, that ended a uh, sixteen chapters of obedience on the part of Israel, starting in Exodus thirty four, chapters in which no sin is recorded on the part of Israel. It was an amazing day and an amazing event. Then in chapter 10, the very next thing that happened after after God had consumed those offerings is that fire once again came out from the presence of God, but instead of consuming the offering, it consumed the offerers. It consumed the two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Because they had stepped into the holy place, into the tabernacle, and had brought strange fire. I take that to be the wrong kind of incense that did not fit God's prescription. Uh, The way of access to God, as we have discussed in the previous lessons, had come from the mind of God. In Leviticus 25, it makes it clear that Moses 
was to construct the tabernacle precisely as God had revealed. The way, the path of access to God came from the mind of God. It was designed by him. It was revealed by him. And every aspect of its construction was enabled and superintended by him. The two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, who oversaw the construction of the tabernacle, the priestly garments, and the the, the props for the sacrificial system, had the Spirit of God put upon them in an unusual way so that the things that they did would be superintended by God. And then all of the people who participated in the construction, it says that the skill with which they carried out that function came from God. That's very important because the way of access to God can only come from God, not from men. Nadab and Abihu introduced in chapter 10 an undirected human element into that equation. They sought to approach the presence of God on their own terms rather than on God's terms. And he took their lives in an instant, very publicly. It is no accident that the instructions regarding the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 begin with the reference to their sin and their death. Because the Day of Atonement would be an exceedingly sacred event in the life of Israel each year. The most sacred day of the entire year. If Nadav and Abihu were consumed by God's fire for bringing the wrong kind of incense into the holy place, how much more would a priest who entered inside the veil into the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of God, at the wrong time or in the wrong manner, suffer the, the instant and fatal judgment of God? So this warning was to protect them. After the death of the two sons of Aaron, In Leviticus 10, Moses had said to Aaron, This is as the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. That's not negotiable. Leviticus 16, verses 3 through 10, then after the warning, go on to provide instructions to the high priest for the preparations to be made for the Day of Atonement. Here we find the explanation of what animals were to be offered, which animals would be used for each type of sacrifice, and even what clothing Aaron was to wear as he performed these ceremonies. First, for himself and his household, which means the entire Aaronic priesthood, Aaron was to bring a bull for his sin offering and a ram for his burnt offering. For the congregation of the sons of Israel, he was to bring two goats for their sin offering, one for the Lord and one to serve as the Azazel, the scapegoat. And by the way, there's a whole lot of controversy about the meaning of that word. I'm going to keep it simple. (laughs) Uh, The way I understand that word is the goat of departure or of removal. And that will make sense as we proceed. The... uh, after the, in addition to the goats, two goats to serve as the sin offering for the people, there was to be a ram to act as the burnt offering for the people, for the congregation. Now, I want to make an, a note here that in previous chapters, in chapter 4 and 5, when a sin offering was made or presented for an individual, it was a goat. 
But when a sin offering was made for the entire congregation, it was a bull. When it was for the priest or for the entire congregation, it was a bull. Now that meant if the, if the entire congregation had committed some sort of corporate sin, like they had done something wrong in relation to one of the holy days or festivals, or they had failed to carry out a punishment against an individual that God required of the entire congregation, then they suffered guilt and they had to make an atonement for their sin. They had to provide, uh, present a, a sacrifice, a sin sacrifice for themselves. That was a corporate sin. But this sin, this Day of Atonement sin sacrifice for the people seems to be much more particular than that because it is a goat offered and not a bull. It is a one-for-many offering, and yet it's very personalized. It addresses the sins of individuals among the congregation of Israel. I want this screensaver down here, John. Let me try again to hook up. Sorry. Okay, I'm back. All right. Preparation for the Day of Atonement offerings. One of the other points to be made is the clothing. The uh, On any other day in which the high priest was performing ceremonies that were seen by the people, he would be wearing very ornate clothing. He would have... Uh, the, the white linen undergarments and robe and the white turban, but he would also have a beautiful blue and purple and scarlet material ephod or short robe on over the top with, uh, with uh, shoulder pieces that had each side had an onyx stone with engravings of the six of the names of the tribes of Israel on each. And then he had a breast piece also of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen And on that ephod were four rows of three stones each, one stone for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. He wore these beautiful bejeweled clothes for most of the the ceremonies. But on the Day of Atonement, in verse 4, it says that he was to, to change into different clothing. A linen tunic, linen undergarments, linen sash, a linen turban. It says these are the holy garments. He was to bathe his body in water and put them on before beginning these ceremonies. These garments were made of simple but finest quality white linen. Now, if you follow the idea of robes of white in the scriptures, what are some of the things that you find? Who wears robes of white in the scriptures? Angels and the righteous, yes, the righteous in uh, Ezekiel 9 and, and uh, 11, oh, excuse me, 9 and 10, and also in Daniel 10 and 12, there's, it speaks of this man in, clothed in white linen, and he's an angel, he's an angelic being, and he carries out a special function. In uh, Revelation 7, the saints gathered before the throne of God are clothed in white robes. Those who have come out of the tribulation are stand before the throne of God. In Revelation 19, 7 to 9, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the white linen born by the, or worn by the church, the bride of Christ, says, it says in the passage that it represents what? The righteous deeds of the saints. In Revelation 19, 14, the armies of heaven that accompany Christ when he returns to earth as righteous judge will be adorned in fine linen, white and clean, following Christ on white horses. 
whether it be angels or redeemed men, those who stand in the very presence of Almighty God are pictured as being clothed in white. Yes. Mm. The robes are always given to them. That's true. That's true. God provides the robes. The white linen worn by the priest on the holy day of atonement seems to picture purity, holiness, and based on some of the wording in the passage, humility. That which is required of one who is about to stand in the very throne room of the Holy One of Israel. Now, the next portion of the, of the narrative in Leviticus 16 goes to the actual ceremonies that were to be performed. And the first is the sin offering for the priests. And I always find it amazing that the very first offering that's presented when it comes to sin offerings in Leviticus is for the priest. <clears throat> and uh, that says a lot about the uniqueness of Christ. But the first thing that happened is that Aaron slew the bull of the sin offering, which was for himself and his household, the priesthood. He then took a fire pan of coals from the altar of incense, which stood uh, just outside the veil of the Holy of Holies. And, in fact, I'm going to bounce forward a couple of frames here. This is the inside of the, uh, of the tent, uh, of the, the tabernacle proper. And you see the veil, you see the altar of incense, and then on the inside of the veil, the ark and the mercy seat. On this one day only each year, the high priest would take from the altar of incense coals, he would put them in a fire pan suspended around his neck, and he would put two handfuls of the prescribed formula of incense onto those coals, and smoke would go up in front of his face as he then entered within the curtain within the veil, into the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies. He would take with him also a portion of the blood from the the sin offering for himself. And he would sprinkle that blood on the front face on the east side of the mercy seat and then on the ground in front of the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle some of the blood on the four horns of the altar of incense when he came back out from the veil. Now, let me ask this. What and who could touch the the holy objects, the the mercy seat, the altar of incense? What could touch or who could touch those objects once they had been consecrated? Nathan says no one. The, The fact is, Nathan's right, no one could touch them. The only way they could be moved is by means of poles that were inserted into, into rings on the, on the corners of the objects, and you could touch the poles, but you couldn't touch the objects themselves. What happened to Uzzah when he tried to keep the ark from falling off a cart? He was dead. It wasn't evil intent, but he, the Israel, all of Israel treated as common that which was uncommon. That was not supposed to be on a cart in the first place. It was supposed to be carried by hand with poles but you're not supposed to touch it. The priest could not directly touch the mercy seat or the altar of incense. What is the one thing in all of Israel that could touch the holy objects once they'd been consecrated? The blood of the sin sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That's it. That's the only thing in all Israel holy enough to touch those objects. 
Now, the, the tabernacle, of course, the tent resided inside this tabernacle compound. When people came to the gateway of the tabernacle or the doorway, the entrance, the first thing they'd see is the bronze altar of where the offerings by fire were presented to God. And then the labor for the cleaning, cleansing and washing of the priests, they would come into the holy place through the screen and then the veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies where the ark and the mercy seat resided. Now, why did the priest, why did the high priest have to have smoke going up in front of his face when he stepped inside the veil? Louder? Right. He could not directly behold, and it wasn't just, it wasn't so much that he couldn't see the ark, it was so that he couldn't see what was above the ark. And what was above the ark? The glory of God. The Shekinah glory. Even Moses in Exodus chapter 34, when Moses said, God, show me your glory. Did God show him the fullness of his glory? No, God said, I will pass by you and I will hide myself. I will put my hand in front of you and you will only see me from the, the back view as I, as I pass by you. John 1 says, no man has beheld God at any time. The only begotten God has revealed him. The priest could not look directly upon the Shekinah glory of God or he would instantly die. Jewish tradition has it that uh, they tied a rope to his ankle as he went inside the veil so that if he did something wrong and dropped dead in there, they could drag him out without going in themselves. After the sin offering was presented, after the blood sacrifice or the blood ceremony associated with the sin offering for the priest came the, the sin offering for the people and for the tabernacle. And this ceremony was really a repetition of the same components, the same procedure that had been done with the blood of the bull. Now the, the priest did the very same thing with the blood of, of one of the two goats, the goat that was for the Lord, that was sacrificed and slain, and its blood poured out, and he took some of that blood inside the, the veil after putting the incense into the, uh, the fire pan, the same ceremony. That was the offering for the people. And then you notice it, it says, for the tabernacle. What effect did the sons of Israel, according to this passage, what effect did the, did the people of Israel have on the holy place in which God dwelled in their midst? They caused it to be unclean. The people defiled the dwelling place of God. And that had to be dealt with. If it wasn't dealt with, God could not dwell in their midst. And who dealt with it? God dealt with it. The sinfulness of God's people was an ongoing threat to the continued presence of God in their midst. Unless God addressed their sin, His glory could not remain among them. And we've already said that the continual burnt offering in previous lessons was a constant day and night reminder, an in-your-face memorial that people could see and smell every time they came up to the doorway to the entrance to the tabernacle compound. That day and night, that burnt offering was going up. And it was a memorial, a reminder to God's people that the only way that they could have access to God is if He provided a blood atonement for their sins. It was a memorial to their sins. 
Many Christians find it difficult to believe that Israelites under the Old Covenant could have understood the principle taught in the New Testament that works of the law could not make them righteous in the eyes of God. That the law served not to make them righteous, but to remind them of their unrighteousness. The law is a memorial to the unrighteousness of man because it is a representation of the character of God. And when men properly behold the law, where do they end up? They end up with their mouths closed, accountable to God, nothing to offer. My contention is that any Israelite who really paid attention to the revelation given through Moses could not miss this point. And I believe that that the error of Israel was at the national and leadership level, but that there were probably a lot of Israelites who got this. David got it. The need for repeated and regular offerings to atone for the sins of all the people, even of the high priest, and starting with the high priest. The need for ritual purification for all sorts of defilements, including some you couldn't avoid no matter what you did. The need for an annual atonement for the tabernacle because of the defilement created by the sinfulness of God's people that threatened the continuation of God's presence in their midst. All of these things lead to the same conclusion, that God's chosen people are not holy and not righteous in and of themselves. They're utterly and continually dependent on God's provision to atone for their sin and impurity so that he can continue to dwell in their midst and they can have fellowship with him and draw near to him. When Hebrews chapter 8 verse 3 says, in those sacrifices is a reminder of sins year by year, a memorial, that is not a new concept from the writer of Hebrews. That concept has been around since the foundation of Scripture. The the reminder of sins was apparent throughout the sacrificial system and was especially and vividly portrayed on the Day of Atonement each year. Now we come to the scapegoat, and this is a marvelous picture. The scapegoat is a picture of substitution. If there was any question early, in earlier passages, excuse me, passages in Leviticus about what it meant when the priest laid his hands on the head of the sacrificial animal, this passage dispels any question, any doubt. It's very, very explicit about the meaning of that, of that ceremony. It says that all of the sins of the people are laid on the head of the goat and then it is sent away to a solitary place and released in the wilderness. The live goat, the scapegoat, vividly pictures the effect of the goat that was slain. In verse 5, in fact, the two goats referred to as one sin offering. Two goats, one offering. The, the separate ceremonies performed with the live goat and the scapegoat have to be taken together to give a complete picture of what was being done. The goat of the sin offering takes the place of God's people. That's what the laying on of hands means. It is pour, its blood is poured out instead of their blood. It bears the penalty for their sin, and bears away their sin from themselves. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, it says, 
Got it memorized, but I'm having a lapse. It says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our shalom, our peace, fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. I believe that David had this ceremony in mind when he wrote Psalm 103. And he said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. The shedding of the first goat's blood and the sprinkling of that blood on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat and on the horns of the altar cleanses the dwelling place of God from the sins and impurities of God's people so that he can continue to dwell in their midst. And the scapegoat pictures the fact that that same shed blood provided by God cleanses the people. The tabernacle is cleansed and the people are cleansed of all of their sins before the Lord. In verses 23 to 28, the scapegoat, the, the blood ceremony is finished. The ceremony with the scapegoat is completed and it moves into the offerings by fire to the Lord that are provided or presented on the bronze altar as the entryway to the tabernacle compound. After the ceremony with the blood of the sin offerings and after the scapegoat is released in the wilderness, Aaron was to bathe his body with water, change back into his regular priestly garments, then present the offerings by fire to the Lord on the bronze altar. The Lord's portions of the sin offerings and the whole burnt offerings for himself and for the people. Now, for those who have been in the class up to this point, I'll mention that it seems to put the burnt offering in front of the sin offering as far as God's portions. There is no chronology required in that part of the, of the passage. It's just saying he, uh, the priest at this point presents the whole burnt offering and he presents the Lord's portion of the sin offerings on the bronze altar, probably essentially at the same time. If you remember at the end of Leviticus 9, after the blood ceremonies were completed, all the burnt offering and sin offering and peace offerings that belonged to God were placed on the altar, and there was no fire yet. Fire came out from the presence of God and consumed them all simultaneously. But the ceremony, the progress of the ceremony, is always sin offering, then burnt offering, and then peace offerings. That's what we talked about last week. According to verse 26, uh, well, Let's see. Yeah, that's good. According to verse 26, the man who had taken the scapegoat into the wilderness also washed his clothes and his body at this point. The washings, the changes of clothes, the complete burning of the remaining portions of the animals that served as sin offerings all point, I believe, to a complete removal of every vestige of the sin of God's people. Everything that's touched by this ceremony is washed or burned up. The very strong picture in the offerings presented on this day is that of complete removal of the penalty of sin. Not permanent removal, but complete removal. We'll get to that. And then in verses 29 to 33 are the final instructions to the people. So far, the instructions have been to the priests. 
The instructions have been how the priests are to handle these offerings. Now, in the last little passage uh, from verse 29 to 34 is God's instructions to all Israel. And he explains that this is a day of solemn rest. Tells them that they are to humble their souls and cease from all work. Now, this is one of those passages that proves that Sabbaths didn't only occur on Saturdays. The term Sabbath is a cessation of work. It is a humbling of self before God and acknowledgement that God is the provider and you are not, that God is the source and you are not. And so you're willing to set aside your efforts to provide for yourself because he's the provider. And there are many Sabbaths and there are sabbatical years and there are jubilee years. There's large-scale and small-scale Sabbaths. This is a day of Sabbath. And on this day you shall be made clean from all your sins before the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 30. It is also a permanent statute for Israel under the law of Moses. And the atonement on this day, according to, the, to <coughs> verse 33, the atonement on this day cleanses the holy sanctuary, the tent of meeting and the altar, the priests and the people. It cleanses everything. This is a, an amazing picture of comprehensive provision for man's sin. Now, I want to get further into that idea. The text in Leviticus 16 clearly and repeatedly states that this is an all-encompassing sin offering once each year for all the sins committed by God's people. But to what kinds of sins does this offering apply? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7 says that on the Day of Atonement, the priest offered the blood first for himself and then for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And that sounds like the terminology that's used in, in Leviticus 4 and 5 when it keeps saying the sins that were committed uh, inadvertently or unintentionally. Now, I'm going to challenge that thought for a minute, and I'm going to say first that as the highest form of the sin offering, the Day of Atonement offering most definitely covered the unintentional sins of Israel. But I'm going to also say that I don't believe the statement in Hebrews 9.27 is a comprehensive statement. It's true, but it doesn't cover the entire scope of this offering and doesn't intend to. The, and I'll give you the reasons for that. First, I believe that the Day of Atonement offering goes much further than just the inadvertent sins and violations of the congregation. In fact, I can't conclude that it only applies to the unintentional violations. First of all, uh, if you look at the wording of the passage itself that's up on the screen, it says, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the unintentional sins of the sons of Israel. No, it doesn't say that. It says all the sins of the sons of Israel, all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. Then in chapter 16, verse 30, it says, On this day atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 34, to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once each year. In order for God's presence to continue to dwell in the people's midst, it couldn't just be some of their sins that were addressed. 
It had to be all of their sins, all of their impurities, all of their uncleanness had to be addressed by God. The word that is noticeably absent in Leviticus 16 is the word unintentional or inadvertent. It's used repeatedly in Leviticus 4 and 5 with regard to the regular sin and guilt offerings. It's not used at all in this passage. And and uh, the second point is that the word that is, that is noticeably present here is the word all, as we've just seen. It's used three times in one verse in verse 21, and then it occurs in several other in several other verses, and I believe it should be taken at face value. The third point is that the term, the Hebrew term that's translated here for transgressions, if you've got the NIV, you'll find that it's uh, translated rebellion, and that's what it means. It means rebellion. This is the word uh, that... By the way, this word, in, in, as far as Leviticus, is found only in chapter 16. It's found only in the discussion of the Day of Atonement. This is the same word that God said when he said that he is, uh, he is slow to anger, merciful and compassionate, and that he, is, he is, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The middle word, transgression, is this word. And that was right after the golden calf incident. Was the golden calf incident defiance or was it unintentional sin? It was the highest form of defiance. It was rank idolatry. This is the word that's used when David confesses his sin after Nathan has convicted him. And he writes this wonderful psalm in Psalm 51. And he's going to God and on the basis of God's character, he's laying claim to God's forgiveness of what of his transgression, his rebellion his murder, his adultery. These aren't little, little small-scale sins this is talking about. In Genesis 50, verse 17, this word is used of the sin of Joseph's brother against Joseph. They tried to kill him, and then they threw him in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt, and God used that for good. But their intent was evil. This is a powerful word, and it's used only here as far as the context of Leviticus, is used only on this day. This is not talking about only unintentional sins. It covers those, but it covers more than those. Now, the perfect sacrifice for all sin is, of course, Jesus Christ. And my overriding point today is that the Day of Atonement is a beautiful and vivid picture of a one-for-many sacrifice but it's a picture of the real one-for-many sacrifice that truly accomplished everything that was foreshadowed in Leviticus 16. In Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls, excuse me, of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By this will we have been sanctified, that means made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
In verse 12, it says, For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The blood of bulls and goats could not avail. It could not take away the sin of God's people. It could only picture that which takes away the sin of God's people. And it was offered by priests who were sinful themselves, who could not bear the sin of God's people on themselves. And as we'll see in a moment, the animals that were used as the sin sacrifices also could not conceivably bear away the sins of God's people. All of this points forward. The true sacrifice, the Lamb of God, was offered once for all to bear away our sins for all time. He is the only one who truly removes our iniquities, rebellions, and sins, who takes them utterly away to a solitary land once and for all so that we stand spotless and blameless in the eyes of God forever. And there's a new tabernacle. Under the old covenant, the dwelling place of God was defiled by the uncleanness of God's people. It had to be repeatedly cleansed on the Day of Atonement in order for God to remain in their midst. Now, the dwelling place of God is God's people. We are the tabernacle of God. And how is that possible? It's possible because a complete cleansing has occurred. Instead of our uncleanness presenting a threat to the continuing presence of God in our midst, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us once and for all so that His Spirit takes up residence in us permanently. That could never happen in the Old Testament. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, wonderful passage. The whole basis of fleeing from immorality in that passage is that we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. We are owned by God and He has made us to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to bounce over in, before we wrap it up into Leviticus 17 for a minute. This is an exceedingly important passage. And this explains why the sacrifices we've just looked at could not conceivably have availed for the payment of men's sin. So bear with me for another minute. Leviticus 16 lays out explicitly God's requirement, first, that the sacrifices could only be presented at the central tabernacle. You couldn't just provide a burnt or sin offering or peace offering anywhere you wanted to. You had to come to the central sanctuary. According to verses 8 and 9 in chapter 17, any man who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tabernacle at the place in which God dwells in the midst of God's people will be cut off from his people. Then in chapter 17, verses 10 to 16, God forcefully declares that the blood of the sacrifice belongs to him alone. God says of any man who eats blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. Exodus 31, about the covenant of the Sabbath, tells us that anyone who violates that covenant is cut off and then it tells us that means killed. Cut off means dead. But the passage here does not leave it to Israel to guess why the prohibition against eating blood is a matter of life and death. Leviticus 17.11 is one of the most pivotal verses in all of Scripture. 
It's easy when you read it in English, it's easy to read right over, but if you read it in Hebrew, it jumps right out at you, and I'll tell you why. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Then in verse 14 it says, For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any Flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Do you want to use God's definition of life? Blood and life are the same thing in God's economy. And that's how you have to read the scriptures. All life proceeds from God and belongs to God. And therefore, all blood proceeds from God and belongs to God. This foundational principle is actually not even new to the law. It was presented in Genesis chapter 9 when Noah got off the ark and brought all the animals off the ark and God said to him, you can eat of any of these except for one thing, you can't eat the blood. And in Genesis chapter 9, we find the explanation for why the blood sacrifice of animals could never avail for forgiveness of sins. Because in Genesis 9, verse 4, it says, Only shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, and from every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed, for in the image of God he made man. The picture of the sin offerings is that of the substitution of blood for blood, of life for life. But based on the reasoning of Genesis 9, the only sufficient payment for the life's blood of a man is what? The blood of a man, not the blood of an animal. And that's why in the eye for an eye passages like Leviticus 24, if you shed the blood of another man, you forfeit your life because you took his life. And there's no equivalence between the blood and the life of a man and the blood and the life of an animal. In the Old Covenant, there is no equivalence between the blood of a man and the blood of an animal. Are you with me? The sin sacrifices of animals could not have availed for the forgiveness of man's sin because the sin sacrifice of an animal does not equate to the life of a man. It does not work. And it never worked. This isn't a New Covenant concept alone. This is a scriptural concept from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. There's been the wages of sin, the wages of a man's sin is the death of the sinner. And the only sufficient ransom for man's life is the life's blood of a man who has no debt to God to pay for himself. A man who is sinless. Otherwise, his payment would only avail for himself. And there has only been one such man in all of human history. The perfect man, the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. One other point and then we'll be done. 
I said that in the Hebrew, this verse, Leviticus 17.11, jumps out. That's because the word I is very, very emphatic in the verse. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for your lives. The word I is emphasized in two ways that makes it jump right out. First, the pronoun I is already implied in the form of the verb in Hebrew, first person. But it's, it's presented here separately. The pronoun is explicitly presented in the verse. Secondly, the pronoun precedes the verb, which is very unusual in Hebrew. Normally the verb is first and then the pronoun. In two ways, the word I is thrown in the face of Israel and God is saying, don't think you're giving anything to me. This isn't about what you're giving to me. This is about what I'm giving to you. I have given you the blood of the sacrifice on the altar to make atonement for your souls. The point of the emphasis is clear. Yahweh is the only one who can fix man's problem. The atoning sacrifice was not to be seen as something that merit that men gave to God to merit God's favor, but as the means that Yahweh, God, gave to the Israelite as a gracious provision in his place in view of his helplessness and utter lack of merit. This verse speaks volumes about the error of Israel's approach toward the law on the national and leadership level. Israel was enamored with the letter of the law. They saw their relationship to God's covenants as a free pass. They thought that they were... that. It, that if they simply diligently brought all the appointed sacrifices and performed the external ceremonies, that they would merit God's favor and blessing. They did not approach the law by faith. But the Word of God always and only focuses upon what God has done. God's gracious acts of deliverance, His provision of the substitute whose life was poured out to bear away our sins, That's what the Day of Atonement is about. God's provision is the starting point for every response of man. We love because he first loved us. It is the basis for every exhortation and command in Scripture, and it is where our life's focus must always be. He did it all, and we did nothing. Loving Father, I thank you for this passage. I pray that the that the beauty and the power of it is impressed on all of our hearts. I pray that the picture of the provision that comes only through Jesus Christ would be driven home to us. And that every time we think about this passage or come across it or talk to anyone about it, we would know without question that it is about Him. Lord, thank You. We don't even know how to begin to thank you for what you've done in our place. Thank you for taking these sinful, fallen vessels, these children of wrath, for plucking us out of the domain of darkness and planting us in the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we know it is only because of his blood and in his blood that we have life. We give him the glory, and we pray our lives would glorify him. Amen.